0: Hi, folks. This podcast was recorded last week with Professor uh, Colin Harvey from Queen's. Uh, many regular listeners will be well aware of Colin and his contributions. In the meantime, just to let you know that uh, Human Rights First have spoken out about the uh, how academic freedom is under threat in Northern Ireland. And uh, just to give you a direct quote, given the history of conflict there, Acts of intimidation against human rights defenders and lawyers like Colin Harvey must be must not be ignored. We will continue to not ignore them on the Tortoise Shack and we will continue to cover them. Solidarity to Colin and anybody else who is is feeling intimidated for just having these discussions that are necessary now. Uh, that, as I said, the podcast was recorded last week, so you know if you were a patron, you'd have got it already. Um, how you join us, it's patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It's the price of a fancy cup of coffee once a month, and it keeps us going. It keeps the mics on. And this week already, we have had an amazing few days. We have spoken to Daniel Murray of the Sunday Business Post about the dual energy crisis and climate action, associate professor from UCD, well-known um, contributor to the Tordish Shack, Aidan Regan, has uh, has joined us as well to talk about the narratives and the political economy narratives. fascinating to, to talk about how things are reported and framed uh, and Aiden was really good on that uh, in addition to that there's obviously the pa- patron exclusives but there's a brilliant new glow west out and a brilliant new built different uh, and the, the girls on built different talk about toxic beauty and uh, and some of the the Pressures put on people to to perform in certain ways look in certain ways and uh i can tell you as a as a as an older man it was great not to have to think about that too much but nonetheless it's it's a fantastic conversation and they continue to knock it out of the park um please do support us please come on board it's uh, once a month 550 a month patreon.com forward slash tortoise and it helps keep us independent and keeps the mics on thanks and let you enjoy the podcast now Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and uh, Monday morning and we managed to drag him out of bed. He's in his house coat. Uh, he's, uh, he's, he does look like death warmed up, but he apparently that's the look this summer, Martin, is it? It's. Uh, I thought you were talking about Colin. No, it's yeah, me. I was, You're talking uh, I about was getting that. a
1: bit anxious there. At the
0: start, <laughs> I, I, this is all staying in. We're not changing the words. Um, no, look, it's great that we can laugh because we're not exactly going to go into the, the, the most uh, pleasant of conversations Now, we are thrilled to be rejoined on the podcast for, I don't know, but the fourth or fifth time by uh, Queen's University Human Rights Professor Colin Harvey. Colin, good to speak to you. And how are you keeping? Great. And
1: it's brilliant to be back on the podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. Always not, appreciate it.
0: Not at all. Um, the, uh, the last time we, we we actually bumped into each other, we were in Derry. Uh, and I just do want to comment for listeners. Uh, that Colin's exceptionally tall for a man who looks very small on Zoom. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think the photograph's still there on my Twitter, you know? So. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. The, you can see the back of my head. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, no, look, uh, um, look, uh, just... just we are making light, but can we can we start off first of all from your own perspective? When we first were speaking, must be nearly eighteen months ago, maybe two years ago. At this stage, uh, there were your role had been politicized by people in in the other side, and I mean that your professional occupation. People were actually getting contact with your employer, um, trying to make things difficult. There was a there was a inference that you know you were going to be appointed to a a, a human rights board, uh, and that was. You know, there was in, there was interference, I'm saying, Colin, and um, from from other political persuasions that uh, and most recently, I know it it has seemed to ramp up again. I, I hate to use that phrase that some of this is seasonal because it does seem to get worse as we approach certain dates in, in, in the ca- in the calendar. Um, how have you been experiencing? How, how has it been for you personally? And I know, first of all, I want to say you've had some solidarity from from strange corners. You know, the the U.S. Uh, Senate. You've had you know you've had people who who've spoken out in in your defence. But I I just see it as, as something that has continued to to grow and has actually picked up a little bit of momentum more recently.
1: Well, thanks, Tony, for for raising, and I suppose. Some of it's taken me aback as well, and it's been fantastic to see the international solidarity and support, and it was interesting to see a number of UN special rapporteurs intervened as well this year. I suppose the the wider context, and I don't want to overplay it really, is that there's there's a history here of people being singled out in this sort of way, and it, it is quite disturbing there's an aspect of it I find rather bemusing because much of it doesn't seem to focus on substantive <laughs> arguments that I'm making. And some of the criticism you know, is at a very, very superficial level, but I seem to have yeah, become a bit of a lightning rod for some anxious and angry people mm. uh, here who are clearly concerned and worried, but Obviously, what I've been trying to focus on is just keeping doing the work and keeping making the arguments, and you know, repeat today on this program, and I, I reiterated it over the weekend. You know, I think there needs to be more engagement and more dialogue, not less. And my virtual and and real physical door, now that I'm back at Queens, remains open. You know, mm-hmm. to to have the come and talk to me. Let's talk about the arguments, but but but, but I'm not keen on arguments that are highly personalised. And some of it has really been disinformation, misinformation, and sort of trying to create a sort of toxicity around me. But but, but in a sense, that's happened to a range of people here over the years. And I think the important thing for people is not to be derailed and distracted, just to keep going, keep doing the work. And, uh, you know, the substantive arguments are what matters. And at the moment, we're in a very difficult position. We have a government in London that seems intent on, (laughs) you know, destabilizing this place by design you know consciously and, and uh, that's a worry.
2: And you're right that they have targeted other people. We yeah. have seen the Tarnashta targeted and, absolutely. and for us you know the Tarnashta targeting us some sort of
0: The Minister uh, Simon Coveney had to be evacuated from a, a meeting that you were actually at Colin. Now, and, yeah, and neither, of these, yeah. neither of these neither of these
2: guys are w- what we would think particularly nationalist at all you know um in, in the temperature of Ireland, they're definitely on the tepid end. And um, so, you know, to target them, it just shows that there's not a whole lot of sense going on in the targeting. It, it just seems to be whatever the figurehead is, whatever the name is, rather than, um, you know, what the person's ethos is. It's not even a personalized talk. It's just the position, really, isn't it? I suppose I would
1: just to push this further in the you know, wider debate about the public sphere and public debate. I was at the Human Center when, you know, there was that hoax bomb attack on, on Simon Covey and Leah Radker and Simon Kobney seemed to have become a particular target for, for a lot of this this anger. But, but I want to flip it over, but I actually think it is more thought through and coordinated than many people give it credit for all of this. I think it is intended to achieve political objectives. And I do think people who are doing this um, know what they're about you know, I, I do think it's an attempt to distort and shape public debate to a particular political objective. And you can actually see, you know, when you live and work in the north, you can see public institutions wobble. You know, they, they don't know how to respond. And when this sort of, you know, wall of noise mm. comes in your direction, you know, people quite understandably want to keep their head down. You know, it creates a sort of fear factor. to So uh, I, would, I would say some of this is about... Is conscious, it's by design that some of the groups doing this know what they're doing and they're trying to essentially change and achieve outcomes in the public debate.
0: Yeah, and it's uh, easy that sort of stuff because yeah. it helps reframe an argument because you will have, like, uh, to Martin's point, there's kind yeah. of a, an amalgamation of both the points you've made. That yeah. one of it is, is obviously it can be coordinated, and the other is that the person, the personality doesn't matter, it's the person who puts their head above the parapet. You know, and and in some of those situations, but like, you know, the 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 driver that was involved that was uh, taken hostage effectively for for that for that for that bomb hoax, his life is his life is altered. You know, like that's something that that we we have to look can't look away on. We've seen, you know, the rhetoric has been it's getting worse. It's getting more toxic, and and that can stifle those conversations. And it's the conversations, the debates, the arguments that we need in good faith to take more of as you say all the time Colin not less of them um but I am conscious of why we're bloody having this conversation Liz Truss is talking to Simon Coveney and she's saying you know um oh uh, we we need to act to we need to act to protect the 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 integrity of the thing we the, the the protocol has created and I quote a whole new set of uncertainties and will damage relationships now I, I, Mary Lou McDonald called some of this uh, mesmerizing uh, yesterday uh, saying that effectively they were the, what they were saying was actually was, was, was incorrect in terms of the, the human rights law, the Good Friday agreement protections. Emma de Souza was on with us and she was explaining that, you know, the, this kind of almost trying to word a new veto in, in, in the, into certain situations on which would create problems for everybody on this island. Can I get your sense of, of this? Because I'm going to put it to, I want to frame it though. It's important to frame it this way. Just because the British government say one thing doesn't mean it has to be accepted by, by everybody. Because there seems to be this thing that they're going to rip up this international agreement and everybody's just going to shrug. I, I just want to start the conversation by saying that for me is a fallacy before we get going.
1: Well, I agree with that. This British government over a sustained period of time, you know, it, it's not just today in terms of the protocol bill. It's been fundamentally disingenuous, um, utterly reckless and irresponsible in relation to how they've managed the process here. And and what an insult, really, to the people of the island of Ireland, not only to be fundamentally negligent, irresponsible, and reckless, but to wrap it all up disingenuously. In the language of the agreement, like what? What better way to insult <laughs> the people of the island of Ireland than to do that when they've spent so long really undermining this place? But let's also be be clear: they know what they're about. You know, the the Brexiteers—they're in a strategic battle with the European Union. They they like they seem to like these periodic scraps, and we are collateral in that scrap with the European Union. And I think. For unionists here, loyalists here, DUP, UUP and others, you know, need to show much more awareness of that, that essentially um, there's nothing predictable about the outcome of how that will go. Um, it could go in a number of directions, but it's a long-term trajectory. We've seen what they've done with legacy as well. There's proposals around the Human Rights Act. There's a whole range of things. Where I this- mean, like,
0: we've sorry, just yeah. speak, like, we, yeah. we can't just skirt those. they, yeah. they wanted to act again unilaterally yeah. to yeah. say you know basically remove any kind of hope for real truth, reconciliation, and justice. They've also moved on on on. Uh, uh, like, like, again, we spoke to Emma about the situation, yeah. about, about people's citizen rights and what it means, mm-hmm. all of these things. And then, you know, I, I put it to you, Colin, before I know Mark wants to come in that they're getting, they're getting away a, a with it because we got to remember, if we want to bring the clock back a few years, Boris Johnson told us he had an oven ready deal. You know, uh, this was his deal. He actually negotiated this, and now he's telling us that you know that it, that uh, it's not good enough. What's happening? And goes, <laughs> you you told us it was oven ready, and you yeah. you expect us to forget that you said those words? But yeah. we can't.
1: Absolutely, they they co-designed it. You know, you couldn't make some of this stuff up. You know, in terms of how they're behaving and and, and acting. Um, but I do then think. Where does it leave us? It leaves us on the island of Ireland, looking to the Irish government and the Irish state as well. You know, can we really go on being the collateral of decisions made at Westminster? You know, Westminster, in a sense, has form. You know, this isn't new. Um, They'll keep doing this, particularly this Tory government. So it does put an onus on Dublin as well, on this island, to, to say, you know, can, you know, we... Accelerate the conversation about doing things differently here as well, and having those conversations too, because we can't keep going on on this island, bemoaning <laughs> being uh, collateral in the games of Westminster. Uh, they're gonna, they may keep periodically picking fights with the EU. They may keep using the North as a pawn in that game, but there are alternatives. You know, there's one that particularly looms large that people are talking about in the moment. And I I do think the Irish government in particular needs to give serious thought to its role in all this too.
2: I think there's, uh, we spoke yesterday to to, to Emma and we spoke to others, and there seems to be a sense that an election now is inevitable, that this is where it's all tumbling towards is another election up north. But into that bargain, um, Johnson's not so safe, as we've seen recently and there could be an election in the uk what are your feelings on it is it inevitable on both sides i mean it's certainly inevitable i think at this stage for northern ireland
1: my own view is very little in life is, is is inevitable you know so we'll see how things play out um it may be that somewhere in the mind of the dup they think they can get the votes to return again as first minister and it is definitely the case that the Conservative Party has always got one eye to the next Westminster election. Um, so we'll see what happens, um, whether the DUP really wants to, to risk that. And I think part of that is, particularly for unionism, political unionism in Northern Ireland the North, is that coming to terms with a new reality has obviously been quite difficult and challenging. I think a lot of the behaviour that you're seeing at the moment from unionism is about you know intensified anxiety about what's going
0: on here and the sort of changes that are happening. Can I ask on that, though, yeah. C- Colin, um, some of the commentary I've heard, and I um, to put a, of course, I can't speak for unionism yeah. or loyalism, but yeah. I've heard some of the commentary around that political shift, that they felt there was triumphalism in the, in the Sinn Féin result, and that while the border poll was never really mentioned during the course of the campaign, within minutes of the results being known, it was, it was very much on the agenda immediately when Mary Lou appeared on, on, on Mary Lou McDonald appeared on, I think it was RTE. And a lot felt that that was, you know, not, uh, not reaching out to the, to the community that had effectively just felt the power base uh, shift on them. And then again, and I know I'm going to get myself in trouble here, but even on, I was on um, RT radio on Thursday and they and it was a it was a book show, and Mary Lou spoke about uh, the the her the book about uh, the British acts on the state, uh, what they've done in Ireland, the dirty campaign, and I just thought to myself, going, you know, uh, bloody pick Animal Farm or something. Let's not. We don't need to. We don't need to. You know, uh, uh, hype it up any more than we are currently. I do think there's an uh, the the onus is also on 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 sensible, responsible uh, uh, thinking just maybe curating how those messages are coming across i don't know if you agree with me but i just i just did i do accept from certain communities why that would feel very much like um triumphalism well i'm i'm going to
1: break a world exclusive on your podcast today uh the Chinsane Police in the united ireland <laughs> um you know uh, it it wasn't news to many people here and I think it was in their manifesto, you know. So, you know, Sinn Féin are one political party. The conversation uh, is wider than that, you know. I I do a lot of work um, on the Manage Board of Ireland's Future, which is a civic society organisation, which is trying to promote conversations. and And you'll notice that a lot of the language that many people use, um, including Sinn Féin, actually is is a is a careful language of, you know, planning and preparing, trying to acknowledge that there are and there will be anxieties about. Any sort of change, but on the other hand, you know, when the EU has offered Northern Ireland an automatic way back to the EU, when you have a range of political parties, a range of people here who, and you know, I wouldn't be uncritical of the EU, but but who see that as a very positive and are very pro-European, including in parties like the Alliance Party, it seems to me it would be weird. <laughs> it would actually be weird if we didn't talk about it, and 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 weird in this way, Tony. It would suggest that there is a chill factor here. It would suggest that that all the stuff that has come my way actually works if we weren't talking about it. But I see your, you know, there needs to be a responsible conversation and need to be able to bring people in the room. Because ultimately there's going to be referendums, there's going to be a referendum in Northern Ireland, and and people who are advocating change will want to win a referendum. And to do that, well, you need to persuade people, you know, mm. and take people with you, you know, whatever political party or civic movement's involved in that.
2: See, I kind of, I kind of disagree with Tony on this one, and I do disagree. I think that it's a democracy; it's meant to be a democracy. Parties win, parties lose. If you can't take the rough and tumble of the democratic process, what are you in it for? You know, we we don't say that Fina Gale should couch the way they speak to 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 accommodate Fina Fall people or Labour, but we don't. We and no other democracy does. So why do we up north? Can we not just have an, a, a proper democratic process where nobody but, has well, a privilege? But that's, but, that's,
0: but that's the point, Martin. The institutions don't work. You know, and, and this, again, another British government fallacy at the moment is that we have to do this stuff under protocol because uh, the, the, the storm doesn't work. And storm hasn't been working long before the protocol.
2: I, I, uh, think, I think when Colin says this plan, I think that is the plan actually. I, I think the plan is to undermine Storm, just to keep undermining it and keep undermining it and try and get it back to Westminster. And I think that is the plan. I, I, and it's I, a big step backwards. It's a massive step backwards. I
1: think one of the things we have to keep in, in mind is I do think there's an awareness uh, within unionism and loyalism that we are heading towards those referendums anticipating the agreement. And there is a suggestion Around that, you know, of, of almost trying to rewrite the agreement provisions around that, and uh, you know, around cross-community consent. And when we talk about the principle of consent, increasingly you're hearing from unionism, the language of unionist consent to everything, which is mm-hmm. altering the meaning of the agreement. So as we head on to the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, there seems to be a bit of a battle going on. Uh, around rewriting and renegotiating and, and trying it, to get that on their table.
0: I, it's actually, it's, it's a pity we didn't get to that yeah. really immediately yeah. because that's the important thing here. There is yeah. an attempt to almost introduce a community-based veto for uh, that, that could supersede the will of literally millions mm-hmm. of people. And and that can't, and, and that cannot actually, uh, but that's why I tr- wanted to start the conversation by saying, I don't believe, and you should, you correct me if I'm wrong, Colin, you're a human rights professor. Yeah. I don't believe that that's going to, that's going to sail through any, any, any court of justice.
1: Well, I think they, there's, there's a consensus about what the agreement as it currently exists means. You know, the principle of consent is fairly clear in terms of the 50 plus one position. So I think that's clear. But I do think in the language in the last while, increasingly unionist politicians are using the language of unionist consent Mm. Uh, when they talk about the people of Northern Ireland. At times it sounds rather constricted interpretation. And and in that, there's an anticipation of where things might be going next. I suppose if you wanted to be slightly provocative about it, unionism in a sense on the island of Ireland, partition as a result of... (laughs) of unionist uh, resist, resistance in that sense. And now that things are changing within Northern Ireland, unionism in a sense, even retreating further uh, in terms of a veto within Northern Ireland. So you've got that uh, emergent position. I suppose politically, you can see why unionism is doing it. It's it's worried. It's, it's insecure. It's nervous. If you look comparatively around the world at comparative communities in this situation, it's not uncommon either. So but, you know, the, the the theme that we're talking about today is we get agreement after agreement after agreement that remains unimplemented, that people try and unpick after the event. Um, and we're seeing it again today with the protocol legislation. You know, as you said, you know, this was designed, negotiated between the UK and EU. And now, as a result of a sort of wall of noise around the protocol, it's about to be unilaterally and it seems unlawfully unpicked mm. in, in London. So... I think that should disturb everyone on the island of Ireland. But I go back to a question I raised earlier. You know, is the Irish government and the Irish state going to be a bystander in relation to this island? Um, There is a way to achieve alignment. Uh, It is in the Good Friday Agreement. I do agree with the point that we shouldn't be afraid to talk about it in the language that's there in the agreement. And it would seem to me, it just seems to me bizarre. At the minute that Micheál Martin, for example, seems so uncomfortable talking about something that's in the agreement is in the Irish constitution and, and provides a solution to some of the problems, not all of them, that Brexit has inflicted on the island of Ireland in a context where there's a pro-Remain majority. I don't equate that to majority for constitutional change, but you know, the Irish government needs to be pressing on with that,
2: in my view. Oh, yeah. I think Colin, there again, it's the domestic situation in Ireland. And they're playing it for the domestic situation. You know, they're they're tight on the poles. They don't want to ruffle feathers. They don't want to upset boats. But we have seen good support coming back from the US. And I mean quite a solid wall of support coming back from the US. Do you find any positivity in that? I think
1: absolutely, and it's a game changer in terms of the current discussions because. You know, you've got Biden in uh, the White House, you've got the EU and the US closely aligned, many people in the world looking on in horror, really, at uh, a British government, given what's going on in the world at the moment, sort of stepping away from international law, um, picking a trade war with the European Union. So it's bemusement, I think. You know, I just was... Thinking about it the other day as well, and people have talked about this, how often in history has the British state, the British government been faced, been the weaker party, really, in terms of a negotiation and an agreement? And in this context, it is,
0: you know, the EU um this is, actually y- now that yeah. you say put that yeah. that's, i think it's the second time in in, yeah. in recent history yeah. whereby yeah. Yeah. the didn't uh beijing make a deal with them and said we won't we won't uh you know you can give them autonomy uh and we'll guarantee it for 20 years yeah. and it gave it, it gave them 24 months and then <laughs> started cracking down on the autonomy yeah. and and uh you know like yeah. so so they have found yeah. that that is that their their power base like they are no longer you know, the, the sunset, the sunsets over the empire very quickly these days. I mean, Jamaica looking to remove the head of the, the, the queen as the head of state. All of these things are are, are all in, in train. But I, I do think you're right to point out that the Irish government has been reluctant. Like they keep talking about, you know, uh, more platforms more forums but not talking about what where the destination is going you like i mean we're martin you know as well as i do we're probably two years away from them suggesting the citizens assembly to discuss it you know oh, <laughs> and, i know i know
2: and, and it is but again i think with with the south the political picture is changing very fast down here and it is and i think that there we're not going to see any great moves until there's a general election and then you will see some moves but i don't think you're going to see any great moves before a general election, it's it's all personal politics uh, rather than politics for the country.
0: Can I actually say on yeah. that though? And both Colin, uh, yeah. you'll be aware, this both yeah. Tonya and the Taoiseach have made statements about you know moving towards United Ireland uh, in terms of you know uh, so so that they, it's not like they haven't made statements on. This and there
1: basis. is isn't there you know Tony and Martin some it's been quite noticeable that Leo Varadkar, Neil yep. Richmond uh, actually even Simon Horace, even Simon Cook you know the noises they've been making around this um, have at times been quite forthright you know and and in the switchover later in the year it'll be intriguing to watch what happens and I suppose you know are Irish political parties really going to wait for what looks like an inevitable you know Sinn Féin led government the next time around or Or would it be the wiser course to to get on with starting this work? Because, you know, if you're in a situation, a Sinn Féin first minister in the north, albeit that, you know, is an equal position with deputy first minister and a Sinn Féin-led government in the south. You know, again, back to earlier, it's not groundbreaking world exclusive. You know, (laughs) it's it's a central pillar of Sinn Féin's political agenda uh, to advance this. But would the wiser course not be to, to get this stuff started now rather than wait around to Mm. A potential new
2: government. Yeah, you know? I, I think when you're hanging yeah. on by your fingernails, yeah. Colin, you don't yeah. see the bigger picture. Yeah,
0: and no, Colin. Colin's yeah. right. There's been like yeah. Leo Varadkar's been a little bit more vociferous. He's given speeches where he's talking uh, about.
2: But we're still 25 years behind implementing the GFA. We, no matter if they did it tomorrow, oh, listen, they've, 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 I, they've still been decades it, behind it, the curve.
0: If you recall the, the 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 what what I said about the you know the. Sinn Féin getting the blame for the Good Friday agreement not being implemented and I've been fairly harsh on Sinn Féin I think toward, tr- throughout this podcast but I did I did make the comment when I was on the telly saying oh by the way the Irish government are a signatory to it and they've done pretty not much pretty- feck all yeah. as well yeah. in, in getting I, I just wanted to just the, the, the Sinn Féin
1: point is it, it, I always find it intriguing from a northern perspective right because for for quite a long time Sinn Féin have been a a rather normal and boring party of government in the North. You know, they've been doing government in the North for uh, a very, very long time. They've, you know, been in the executive. So sometimes I find the discussion in the south of the island fascinating in that context um, in in terms of it. But ultimately, in the longer term, Brexit has created a very, very strong, even people who would have been normally cautious about some of this, it does create a big strategic... um, and and a, a selfish, really, interest among people in the South who may not care about um, potential Irish reunification for, for just um, drawing a line under this constant use of the North mm. as a pawn in the battle with the EU to bring the entire island under the umbrella of the European Union um, and to really let the potential of the island flourish in uh, the longer term and, you know, with all the potential benefits that that may bring. I do think Brexit changes that rather dramatically because I do think particularly the Tories will find the temptation of using Northern Ireland as a stick periodically to beat the EU with too tempting.
0: And this will keep happening. Although, Can can I say one thing, Martin? And then just you keep saying about the Tories. I know Keir Starmer was in Dublin this week but he's been very uh opposed to a united ireland as well in his, in his proclamations he's not exactly um he's not exactly warming the cockles of my heart when i hear some of the stuff he says no I, and i didn't all you all you really expect of a, of a uk government government in london
1: is to respect the rigorous impartiality provisions of the agreement to be you know essentially an honest broker in implementing the agreement here recognize that the decision will be made by people on the island of ireland without external impediment and that includes westminster and I think, you know, as long as the Labour Party are respecting that, the, the, the problem we have is that you've got a conservative government that's just lost the plot, It's just left the agreement building while carrying the language of the agreement with it. And I just think the ultimate insult and offence to the people of the island of Ireland is to dress this all up, as they're doing today, quite shamelessly, in the language of the agreement. It's I, just, you could not insult the people of the island of Ireland in, in a more provocative way.
2: I I saw one of our journalists from Derry, and she mentioned this yesterday. She said, "Even if they said nothing, it's better than using that language to patronise us." You know, and I agree with her. But I think what you said about Southern is some disingenuous players—yes, there is, of course, there is. And when you see, and I think it was last year, was the article that uh, reunification of of Ireland could cost you zero point something percent gdp
0: will be hit and uh,
2: in in your in your quality of living or cost of living you know when you're down to that kind of granular you know it's going to cost you six quid a week for united ireland when you're down to that granular it means people have thought it true but they are actually just being disingenuous about it i
1: think the absolutely one of the The problems at the minute is this bill is taking us all back to the endless debates of 2017 and 2018 and Mm -hmm. 2019, you know, where various weird and wacky alternatives to what was being proposed were out there. And we're all heading back to that potential rehash of that debate back in 1780. You know, the protocol is there because the alternatives there weren't any credible alternatives and we're now back on that territory again which is just
0: yeah he ridiculous. would but they wanted the a hard brexit they got the hard brexit but the, the cost of that was the protocol and yeah. and now and now as you see we're having that conversation so i that's why i keep thinking that it's quite i you know whatever the british government think they're going to do now i don't yeah. think it's going to stand i do think we'd be good i do think the irish government will stand up whether i'm right or wrong i do think they have because i do think they have the backing of the eu and the us as as you as you've outlined but if i could if i could bring it forward then you know the morning of the brexit vote yeah it literally i think i told you this before martin the first text i sent was to a well-known journalist and i said i can't believe that i'm going to be alive to see united ireland and he said how does that beget that and they said well by literally setting out on the path to avoid something they've driven the car much faster in, in that direction the direction of speed will only pick up because of these um these bad faith uh, acts and these acting unilaterally do you, you've always made the point that there's a route map back into the eu um for, for 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 northern ireland for and then you know and how these these institutions can go can i ask you though i've also i think it was doug Beatty said yesterday we're not going to engage with the conversations for United Ireland. Go off and have yeah. have your conversations. But I've also heard from people in the Loyalist Unionist community who've made one point, um really importantly, what would it look like, Colin? What would it look like? And that is something that I do think, you know, like, obviously, your, the Shared Island Initiative and these things that you're doing, you know, are trying to put some skin on the flesh on the bones of that. But it is it's, we're no uh, we're no utopia down here we've got homeless issues we've got martin's only a bloody out of hospital i can tell you about the problems that that we've had it's not exactly uh you're not you're not you're not joining um you're not joining a a country that is well the economy is booming the society is not exactly thriving it's a, it's a fantastic
1: point uh, my, my view on that always is been that you know the invitation to join in these discussions should remain open, but obviously political union, like, uh, political unionists, and particularly parties like the DP, are not going to uh, join a discussion about how to design a United Ireland in advance of a referendum. I think that's extremely unlikely. But as you've rightly pointed out, the difficulty on this island is um, that's not a reason for avoiding doing the work. And if you believe in constitutional change, if you believe in a change agenda, then you just need to get on with doing the work now. And in universities or in civil society, of having the discussions, doing the planning. And the great thing to see in the last number of years is the more and more sort of evidence-based research that's being done within universities and a number of projects that I'm involved in with many others of doing sort of groundwork you need to present to people for making those sorts of choices. And my own view is, look, we could sit here in this podcast now, this morning, and we could design, uh, lock the doors or whatever, design a... uh, United Ireland and put out a proposal, but that wouldn't be the right way to do it. Uh, there's been a strong emphasis on encouraging deliberations, citizens' assemblies, other civic initiatives. I do think it puts a major onus on the Irish government. We'll have to produce a white paper and make a proposal. That's got to be an appealing and attractive proposal to people, north and south. And really, Anne, just the point you've made, which is a fantastic point, people have a habit now of throwing in new United Ireland. And I'm intrigued as to what the new is (laughs) in that um, because, as we all know, there'll be people in this discussion who are quite small, C conservative, who will want relative continuity. Uh, They won't want the sort of uh, apple cart upset or whatever. They're, they're, They're reasonably happy. And there'll be people who engage because they would like uh, change and the new bit (laughs) to to be meaningful and would like it to be more transformative. I actually think some of the most intriguing, fascinating and maybe quite tense debates will be within the the constituency of those arguing for change, because just for the reasons you've pointed out, people will want to see this lead to really meaningful change for marginalised vulnerable groups in areas such as socioeconomic justice across the island. And we'll be pushing for maximum change um it won't necessarily be utopia overnight but why should we not strive for utopia in the conversations why would you want a sort of third-rate united ireland when you so that, but that's an argument tony for encouraging people to get involved to join in because some of the people who will join in at the early stage will freeze it a bit, will freeze the parameters and might be people who don't want too much change out of all this who don't want transformation who want relative continuity so that's an argument for everybody listening to your podcast today who wants this conversation to lead to real and meaningful change to join in Make your voices heard, you know, come along to some of the meetings Ireland's Futures organising, having a big event in the three arena on the 1st of October, and try and shape the debate at this stage. But you're right, at some point, proposals will have to go forward. What's going to be the
0: content of this? Can I ask one one country question? Yeah. Political unionism says that they want to have sort of their forums that say to the wider people in in the north of the island that, that you're better off with us. Are are uh, the, are the are people within in that in within the nationalist community willing to sit down and, and say, let's let's look at how how do, are we better off in the union?
1: Well, I can only speak for myself and I'll be very, very clear again this morning. I'll go to any. If Doug Beatty, DUP, uh, Jeffrey Donaldson invites me along to I'll be there to discuss. Uh, there are some fascinating debates happening about the future of the UK. I very much hope that when these referendums happen, that the pro-union argument won't be, you know, you're living the dream in Northern Ireland. Now, there you go. Because I can tell you what, we aren't bloody living the dream in the North. Now it's a shambolic mess. So uh, I hope that the pro-union side is is rather more aspirational than that. There's some interesting arguments coming out of Wales uh, f- from sort of pro-union voices about uh, the future of the UK. They're debates about federalism, there's the eternal debate about... Re- so I can only speak for myself, but I know for other people as well, if invited, I'll I'll go to a discussion uh, about union or unity. And I've said, you know, I've tweeted out the European and DUP who keep criticising me for being in photographs with uh, people in political parties, other political parties. If they invite me to write a research report. If they invite me to a conference or seminar, there I'll be there. And i'll say the same things that i'm saying now and i'll even pose for a photograph with jeffrey and doug uh, just around it and they can circulate that on twitter as well so
2: that's a go. great that's a great spot to leave it at Colin. and yeah. i i just say one last thing if you really flip the coin and you really flip the coin what a wonderful opportunity we have is there anywhere else in the world has an opportunity to make a country that suits everybody in the country i don't think there is I don't think there is. I I think it's a wonderful opportunity.
1: I Look, just. we've talked here about fear and anxiety, and often you can get bogged down in the negativity, but that's where I would really like to end this. I'm engaged in this discussion. I spent my entire life working for Equality and Human Rights. I think this is a remarkable debate. Yes, there will be turbulence, and there will always be negative voices when you're proposing something so potentially dramatic. But... What an opportunity, really, for this island. We'll be better off for having the discussion, and we'll, my own view is we'll be better off at the far end of it, but there'll be turbulence. There, there are always people who resist change, here but really that's not a reason for stopping and really again i just emphasize the need for people to join and don't be distracted and derailed by the wall of noise the wall of noise knows what's doing i don't know where i've got the wall of noise from but it just came <laughs> it just sounds good and you know that's life you know what i mean change like this doesn't happen easily um but it's worth it and people should uh, join and in, become involved particularly if they're interested in transformative change and they want the new ireland to be more than just a Continuity, uh, old Ireland.
2: Professor Colin Harvey, thank you very much for taking this time this morning to have a chat with us. We hope you the best of days. We know it's going to be a bit <laughs> tumultuous, but we do hope you the best of days. Who knew
0: the British government
1: was like this, eh?
2: <laughs> well, I think pretty much
0: the rest of the world. <laughs> this is the part where your man who does the, the, the bank ads comes in and says, Pars performance is no indicator of a president. <laughs> <laughs> oh, take care of yourself. Okay, yourself. thank you. Brilliant to talk ta- to you today. Thank you. Ta- Thanks for listening, folks back. Oh, I'm on my way into town shortly to meet with. There's a Ukrainian delegation in town to meet the Irish government. And uh, I might have a sit down with them, hopefully, if we can find a quiet corner. So so that will be coming to you as well soon. Martin, you're not invited. It's only it's uh, I was just
2: thinking, Tony, you're going to have to change your language. You're Not going to say town anymore. You're going to have to say which
0: town uh, the, the, the only one that lives the only the only city in the, the only city on the island. <laughs> Okay. But, there, there you go. Exclusive language. You have to
2: include the culture. So uh, <laughs> I, 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 would like,
0: like. I like going up north. I went up to Cork. I went up to Waterford. I went all those places up north. They're lovely. Talk have you even been Derry? <laughs> <laughs> Take care, folks. Bye bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and
1: Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber Podcast.
2: Subscribe now
1: on Patreon.